Well, hey, everybody. I know I say it each week, but I mean it each week. Uh, it's great to be with you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. We're in the final week of a series that we've called Roots that's all about what Jesus had in mind for his church. And as many of you know, in this series, we're taking a few weeks to explore the early years of the Jesus movement, like how it got started in the very beginning, as a way to sort of remind us all where we came from, who we are, and really what we're doing here when we do this thing called church. And so by way of review, and for the benefit of those of you joining us for the first time today, I began this series by noting something that's sort of surprising, uh, namely that the early church really didn't have any of the things that we tend to associate with church. Uh, they didn't have buildings or pews. Anyone else glad we got rid of pews? Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Or organs or pastors holding really large Bibles or really much of anything other than a steadfast belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they believed that because, well, they had seen Jesus alive again with their own eyes. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was why the first Christians believed in Jesus, and it's why they chose to follow Jesus. Finally, it was why they wanted to share the good news of what God had done in Jesus with everyone that they met, beginning with the people in the city of Jerusalem, the same city just outside of which Jesus had been crucified. Now, here's the thing. As they shared what they had seen, the church grew rapidly. In fact, within a few months, as best I can tell of the resurrection, about 10% of the population of the city of Jerusalem had come to believe in Jesus. Uh, but there's something else we need to understand, and it's easy to forget. Because Jerusalem was the capital of ancient Israel, pretty much everybody who came to believe in Jesus in those early years was Jewish. And so not surprisingly, well, we'll put it this way, the early church took on a distinctly Jewish character. In other words, many of the traditions from the Jewish faith were integrated into the fabric of the early church. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, all those Jewish Christians had been culturally conditioned to follow the Old Testament rules all their lives, like starting from birth. Said a bit differently, a few years into the Jesus movement, the church consisted of mainly Jewish people who had come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but who were also committed to observing the faith of their ancestors. And not surprisingly, this reality greatly bothered the Jewish religious establishment who came over time to view the Jesus movement as a sort of cancer within Judaism. And so in response, they began to persecute the church. We've looked at that for the past couple weeks, but what I haven't told you is that the man who sort of led that persecution was a guy you've probably heard of. His name was Saul of Tarsus. So a guy named Saul, and he came from the town of Tarsus. And Saul was an expert in following the Old Testament law. He was a Pharisee. So like his full-time job was to be good as defined by the laws of the Old Testament. And he came to see the Jesus movement as a dangerous perversion of what God intended. And so consequently, a few years after the resurrection, he decided to act and an early Jesus follower named Luke recorded the details of what that action looked like. Here's what Luke tells us. He said, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, which was a town in Syria, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what early Christians were called, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So just imagine this. Saul goes to the high priest in the temple courts, and that was the guy who pretty much ran the Jewish religious establishment, and he asked to be, like, deputized to round up Christians, put them in chains, and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. But, but notice something here, and it's easy if you're just kind of breezing through, you don't catch it, but, but apparently Saul had no problem leveraging violence to counter what he considered to be, or rather to participate in the will of God. And that was because, and stay with me here, he had read the Old Testament. Seriously. Throughout the Old Testament, and for reasons we don't have time to get into right now, God had permitted and even encouraged violence when it was in line with his will. And so when Saul went to the high priest and asked if it would be okay if he used violence in order to stop the Jesus movement, the high priest said, absolutely, because he had read the Old Testament too. And so confident that God was on his side, Saul set out for Damascus on a mission to destroy the church there. And here's the thing. He just might have done it had God not chosen to intervene in dramatic fashion. And here's kind of what happened. As Saul was nearing the city of Damascus, he was literally blinded by a light, which reminds me of a song from the 70s. Who's with me? Yeah, just make sure you're paying attention, right? And he was blinded by the light, knocked to the ground. And in that moment, Jesus asked him a question. Here's what he said. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded. He said, well, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus revealed his identity, and Saul learned that in no uncertain terms that Jesus really was alive again. It was unbelievable, and yet for Saul in that moment, it was undeniable. And then Jesus said to Saul, now uh, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And It's almost impossible for me to overstate the significance of this moment, both for Saul and really for human history. Because for Saul, if Jesus really had been raised from the dead, and he had, then Saul had been wrong. And and worse than that, he had actually been working against the God who he had dedicated his life to serve. I'm telling you, Saul would have been so disoriented, I don't think he would have known what to do had Jesus not told him what to do. But Jesus had told him what to do. And so Saul got up. And was led into the city of Damascus to wait for God only knew what. Well, uh, meanwhile, elsewhere in the city of Damascus, God made contact with another guy. His name was Ananias. And he told Ananias to deliver a message to Saul. But Ananias didn't want to. (laughs) Because Ananias was a believer and he had heard about Saul. In fact, he told God this. He said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, God, I've heard about this guy. In fact, before you interrupted my day, that, oh, you can do that anytime, that's fine. I was actually packing my things because I knew Saul was coming. He's an enemy of the faith. He's an enemy of your son. And so, no, I don't really want to bring him a message. Could you find someone else, please, right? I'd rather stay as far away from this guy as possible, But God responded, and and this next line should give us chills. This is what God told Ananias. This man, this Saul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Now, Gentiles are just another name for non-Jewish people. And you see, you're reading this quick, and it blows right by. But, I mean, at this point, 
in the history of the church, we got to remember followers of Jesus were almost exclusively Jewish. But in this moment, God affirmed that what he had accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't just for Jewish people. It was for everyone, everywhere. And so God essentially recruited Saul to tell the Gentile world about Jesus. And as he did, as he started to spread the good news around the Mediterranean Rim, he did something really strategic. He chose to go by his Roman name because Saul was also a Roman citizen as well as a Jew. And his Roman name is the one that, by which he is known literally all over the world to this day. And you've heard of him. His name is Paul. And, and so, okay, um, now as the story continues, shortly after Paul's conversion, a parallel awakening when it came to this Jew-Gentile thing occurred within the mind and heart of Jesus' most famous disciple. His name was Peter. And Peter had been appointed the leader of the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, and Peter at this time was still following the rules of the Old Testament in spite of his faith in Jesus. And so God, well, arranged another divine intervention. God made contact with Peter. And, and here's how kind of it went down. Uh, while Peter was visiting friends in a town called Joppa, which is on Israel's Mediterranean coast, uh, he went up on the roof to take a nap. And during his nap, he had a dream, a vision from God in which he saw something that would have struck him as very strange. It was basically all of the animals that the Jewish people had been told not to eat in the Old Testament. Think like pigs and lobsters, okay? And then he heard a voice that said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter immediately responded, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything, and this is key, impure or unclean. In other words, Peter said, Hundreds of years ago, divine voice, maybe you don't know this. Hundreds of years ago, God instructed the Jewish people not to eat any of these animals. And I am a good Jewish boy. I'm an obedient Jewish man. I never have, and I never will. So that's great. Take and eat, not going to do it. And the voice responded, and again, this would have given Peter chills. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And Peter would have been incredibly confused by this comment. I mean, he'd been taught that the animals that he had seen were off limits, like for his entire life. The, the Old Testament, in fact, expressly forbid eating any of them. But now, like a divine voice was telling him to do what he'd always been taught not to do. And so Peter would have thought what you or I would have thought. You, know, you want to ask the question back to the divine voice, like, okay, well, did God change his mind? Because he was really clear in the Old Testament. That would have been the Hebrew Bible. He was really clear. And now what are you, what, you're saying that God changed his mind. Like, and, and you may have had this experience. If you're someone who reads the Bible regularly, there are times that you read something in the Old Testament and you go, boy, that's completely the opposite of what Jesus said. That is fascinating. Did God change his mind? But here's the thing. God didn't change his mind. He changed covenants. And here's what I mean. You're like, oh, no, I don't follow. Okay, <clears throat> here's what I mean. So I, I was like, that is a moment. That was not a moment. Okay, here's what's going on. The Old Covenant was the one that God had established with the nation of Israel 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. And that Old Covenant was fulfilled or brought to its intended end when Jesus died on the cross. And therefore, that Old Covenant, when Jesus died on the cross, had been rendered obsolete. And in its place was a new covenant. We call it the New Testament, right? And that had new rules of relationship between people and God. And now that is awesome, but I'm telling you, for those first Jewish Christians, that was an almost impossible reality to embrace. 
because their consciences had been so finely tuned to all those Old Testament rules. And moreover, the rules had become more than, you know, you know, more than just a way to maintain peace in their relationship with God. They had become a part of their cultural identity. That's why they had such a hard time letting go and embracing a new idea. And, and, and so Peter had this confusing dream. He's standing on the roof of his friend's house looking out at the Mediterranean. And in that moment, there's a knock at the door to the house where he's staying. And when Peter went down and opened the door, standing before him were two Gentile men and a soldier who was also a Gentile who had been sent by a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius had sent them to Peter to request that Peter return with them to Cornelius' home to tell his family and friends about Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. That sounds great. No one's ever done that to me. I'm always looking to share Jesus with somebody. No one's ever been like, hey, come back to my house. Share my friends about Jesus, right? That's awesome. But this invitation would have caught Peter totally off guard. Because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, didn't just instruct Jewish people to avoid eating what it described as unclean animals. It also told them to avoid what it described as unclean people. Consequently, and this is huge, Peter would never in his life have set foot in a Gentile's home. Like ever. And again, this wasn't because the Jewish people were bigoted or narrow-minded. It was because the Old Covenant required them to be physically set apart from unclean things and unclean people. Nonetheless, because of his dream, Peter, along with a few of his Jewish Christian friends, who were probably trying to talk him out of it the whole way they got there, right, made their way to Cornelius' home to share the good news about Jesus. And I just imagine as they got to the doorframe of the house and they're standing there and Peter's thinking to himself, I cannot believe I'm about to do what I'm about to do. But then he entered the home and he went into the center courtyard and there were tons of Gentiles who were eager to learn about Jesus. And then Peter began to speak to them. And I want to show you the first thing he said to them, because I think it's so offensive. It tips us off to the fact that Peter was still coming to grips with the terms of Jesus' new covenant. Here's what Peter said to this group. You, it feels a little judgy. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Just so we're clear up front, right? But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. In other words, guys, you have to understand, like until yesterday, I really believe that all of you were impure and unclean based on what I read in the Jewish scriptures. And if you'd asked me yesterday to visit your home and tell you about Jesus, I would have declined because the Old Testament taught me, well, no offense, but that I was a part of God's people and you weren't. I'm an insider, you're an outsider. Therefore, I wasn't supposed to eat your food or drink your water or marry your women or even wear your clothes. I was supposed to be set apart for God. But today, I understand that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, like everything has changed, the old has gone and the new has come. And now in God's eyes, there are no outsiders. Like everyone is invited. And I'm telling you, he would say to them, like, I'm telling you, I resisted this idea. I mean, I was there the day that Jesus looked at his original disciples and said, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. But I'm telling you that day, if I'm honest, what I thought he said was, I want you to go and make Jewish disciples in all the nations. Which would mean that y'all would have to get circumcised. But stay with me. It's not, that, that's okay, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. I was wrong. And here's what Peter said. 
He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what's right. I'm telling you, that is incredible. It's, it's miraculous. I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. And people in the ancient world were incredibly tribal. And nonetheless, Peter affirmed in this statement that the same God who had raised Jesus from the dead had thrown open the doors and welcomed everyone who desired to come in a, into a restored relationship with him because of Jesus, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their religion of their past, regardless of their skin color or their background or their culture or their socioeconomic status. The message of Jesus was, and the message of Jesus is, a message for the whole world. And then Peter told the gathering in Cornelius' house the story of Jesus' life from the very beginning. And he finished by affirming to them that he himself had seen Jesus alive again, like more than once after his crucifixion. And then before Peter had finished his sermon, something unbelievable happened again. In fact, it was the very same something that had happened in the temple courts on the day that the church was born. You might even say born among the Jewish people, right? That same thing happened again. And Luke described it for us this way. He said, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Like, we're just, we're just like, you know, 2,000 years ago, what are you, what's the big deal? They're like, this was huge. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. It was like Pentecost all over again. But it was a Pentecost for non-Jewish people. And just notice that Luke tells us these, there, were un, there were circumcised believers there. And you're like, well, thanks for the detail. That's kind of personal. Why are we talking about that, right? Well, circumcised believers were Jewish people who had become followers of Jesus, and they were still keeping the Old Testament law. But I'm telling you, what would have happened there that day completely blew their minds. They would have thought, how can God's Spirit come on people who aren't even aware of how to keep the Old Testament laws, who'd probably never heard an Old Testament law, couldn't name two of the Ten Commandments, right? And plus, they haven't even been circumcised. Like, that was the way God marked his people. How could the Holy Spirit fall on them? And so we look back at them and we go, oh my goodness, how could you be so narrow-minded, right? Like, you got to be kidding me, guys. Come on. Hey, but I'm telling you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that God essentially drew a circle around the nation of Israel and instructed them to be separate from their neighbors. They were set apart on purpose for a purpose, but they were set apart. And he told them, don't let them in and be careful when you go out. And it was that way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But then Jesus died and rose again and everything changed. And those first followers of Jesus, who again were almost all Jewish, couldn't believe it. I mean, their whole world was turning upside down. And so as Luke continues, he recorded that when Peter returned to Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish believers there heard what happened. Like Peter's like, let me tell you what went down at Cornelius' house. It was it was absolutely insane. And they didn't even get to the Holy Spirit part. They just said this to him. They said, you went into the home of uncircumcised men. Again, you're like, way too much detail here. Yeah, right, Gentiles. And you ate with them? Are you kidding me? Peter, what were you thinking? You didn't try bacon, did you? <laughs> if so, how was it? Because I've heard it's really, really good, right? Yeah, 
But he's like, dude, you need to immediately quarantine yourselves. You're unclean. You've been exposed to, and this is the technical Hebrew term, Gentile cooties. They're a thing, okay? Yeah. And, and, and so we, again, we read this and go, come on, guys, what is your problem? But again, we didn't grow up with their understanding of the Old Testament. And as it turned out, the shift to understanding that in Jesus, the Old Covenant had been fulfilled and no longer needed to be followed in order to maintain peace in your relationship with God. That was the single most divisive issue in the early church. In fact, and I haven't done an official study on this, I think it's the thing Paul wrote about more than any other single topic other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because he knew, he knew that the world needed to know that because of Jesus, there were no longer any Outsiders in the eyes of God. Again, the invitation to enter a relationship with him was wide open. And that was them 2,000 years ago. And so now just for a moment, I have to pull it forward and talk about what I think this has to do with us and maybe how this understanding impacts how we do church here at Keystone. I mean, again, it's been 2,000 years since Paul's conversion and Peter's vision. And and so you think about it, it's like, well, that's ancient history. I mean, the church in America is wide open, right? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Like, everybody's welcome. Everybody knows that God loves them, right? Right? I mean, those, those first Jewish Christians had to make a big transition in their thinking. But I mean, we're good, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Muted, chuckling, awkward. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You already figured it out because I asked the questions. But I asked them because when you think about the church in our country, we're not good. <laughs> I mean... Whether you realize it or not, churches still regularly and routinely leverage ideas from the old covenant as we engage our culture, specifically ideas about who is clean and who is unclean, and rules about what you need to clean up in your life before becoming one of us. And then there's the expectations about what you need to do and keep doing in order to maintain peace in your relationship with God. But here's the thing, and I couldn't say this in any stronger terms, that is not the gospel. Jesus never intended his church to be an exclusive club with a bunch of entrance requirements that was known primarily for casting judgment on those outside of it. Not even close. I mean, as Jesus imagined it, church was to be a place that celebrated the love that God had for everyone, everywhere, as demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone who believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus wanted his church to be a place that affirmed the value of every single human being, messed up and messy as we are because, let's be honest, we're all messed up and messy, right? If you're not, talk to me afterwards. I'll have you teach next week. Love it, right? Yeah, yeah. Said a different way. Jesus, Jesus desired his church to be a place where all people could find and follow him. Great slogan for a church, I'm telling you right now. Find and follow Jesus, right? Yeah, a place that repeatedly celebrated what he had accomplished when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. A place that wouldn't put anything between someone in a relationship with God other than the cross of Jesus because it was enough and it is enough for everyone everywhere who wants to participate in a relationship with God. In God's eyes, there are no outsiders. And I'm telling you, that is worth celebrating. In fact, a few years ago, someone told me that um, they were visiting Keystone and they were like, that was not church. <laughs> 
And I said, what do you mean that was not church? And they said, well, I grew up in church, and every time I was in church, it felt like I was in a funeral. And I said, you know, it's fascinating, and I thought about this a lot. I said, I think church should not feel like a funeral, unless you're actually there for a funeral, then it can feel like a funeral. But if you're at a funeral, because we're gathered to celebrate a resurrection, right? And, and so, so I want us, as we wrap up this series, to take a moment and celebrate. And we're going to do that by taking communion together. And so the band's going to come out on stage, and I just want to set it up briefly, but again, just to give you all an opportunity uh, to, to take communion, to celebrate the sacrifice that launched our movement. And just a few questions that always come up, um, especially if you're new around here. You don't have to be a member here at Keystone to participate. In fact, this is one of the unique things about us as an organization. We don't have members. And after today, you probably know why. We don't want anyone to feel like an outsider. We call, we call people that attend Keystone friends because that's what you are. And that's what we are. Uh, the, only, the only thing we ask um, if you're going to take communion with us is that you've had a moment when you've personally embraced the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. And again, if that's you, you are welcome to come. Um, and if you're here today and you're still exploring your faith in Jesus, like you're not over the line yet and you know it, uh, you just need to know that we are beyond honored that you are with us. And we have nothing but respect for wherever you find yourself on your journey towards faith. And if we can help in any way, just please reach out. But you can just remain seated um, and enjoy the music, or you can stand, or you can, you know, we're not going to, we're not watching, don't worry, right? Um, but again, for the rest of us, as, a, as just a simple reminder and a word of preparation, communion is a way to recenter ourselves on what Jesus accomplished on our behalf the day his body was broken and his blood was spilled to ratify a new covenant, to establish new rules of relationship between people and God rules based on nothing more than accepting his amazing grace and to say thank you to him once again. So in just a moment the band's going to play a song to give you some space to reflect and then when you're ready come up front or to the back there's four stations along the front and there's three in the back um, and take the bread and dip it in the cup and remember how much you're loved by your heavenly father and the new life that he has invited you to live in response to receiving that love. And then after the song, I'll, I'll come out and I'll close our time in prayer. Except for 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the brilliant simplicity of the gospel. And we're so sorry for all those times where we've made it hard for people to come to see how much you love them. Thank you for the grace when we fail. Thank you for endless chances to start again. And I pray that we would each, as individuals and as a community, we would carry that truth into our world that so desperately needs hope. And you are that hope. And so today in this place, we bless you and we thank you. And we celebrate you and we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.